you ever had a, wait, what moment? Someone is talking and what's coming out of their mouth is perfectly sane and reasonable. And then all of a sudden, there's something that they say that just stops you in, the, in your tracks. You go, wait, what? What did you just say? We've been walking our way through the very last conversation that Jesus had with his followers on the night before he went to the cross. This is really like a charter for the church. Jesus will no longer go forward with them from this point, and he's laying out for them a picture of, of who he's calling them to be and the life that he's calling them to live and, and how he will make his resources available to them as they go forward. And then we come to this wait, what moment? John chapter 15, beginning of verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it has hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. And I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Wait, what? The world will hate us? Whenever we have a, a wait what reaction like that, we always want to stop and just be clear that we've really heard what the person has just said. And I think it's helpful as we think about these comments to just be aware of, of a couple points that may help clarify a little bit what he has said here. First of all, when Jesus uses the word world here and in other places throughout this message and in John's gospel, he doesn't mean the physical planet and he doesn't mean every single person is a part of humanity. The world is the portion of humanity and the portion of humanity's structures that refuse to make a place for God or to take him seriously. So it's about that world, that world whose heart is closed to God that Jesus says the world will hate you. And then the word that Jesus uses here for hate, I think is an important one for us to, to understand a little bit better as well. The, the word is a comparison word. It is a word that talks about how we value or esteem something. And the word hate says that this is something that you do not esteem or do not value, that other things are more important to you than this. And so what that, can, that low regard that the unbelieving world will have towards the church will find expression in a whole range of responses. Everything from maybe amused dismissal or uncaring disregard all the way to outright hostility and hate. So in the light of this comment from Jesus, the question that we're going to be wrestling with this morning is this. So how do we live as followers of Christ in a world that will be hostile to us in some way? What should our relationship with the unbelieving world look like? How do you answer that question? It's an incredibly challenging one, isn't it? For the last several years, I've really been giving a lot of thought to this and praying about it and studying the scriptures in connection to it and, and reading a lot about it. And I know of many of you have been wrestling with some of the same questions. And in a lot of ways, the church has been forced to ask some of these questions in the last couple of years. Well, I think if I were to try to frame in a biblical way of thinking about how we are to live as followers of Christ in a hostile world, there are four key principles that I would want to highlight. And those will be the focus of my message this morning. And they're all about seeking clarity. This is such a cloudy and complicated question. 
And it's one that has shown itself in recent years to be very divisive within the church. So what does it mean to think in clear biblical ways about this really complex and challenging stuff? Well, here's what I'd like to suggest are the things that we need to clarify. And I'll look forward to hearing your thoughts about these. First of all, I believe that we need to be clear about why the world views us the way that it does. Why does the world hate us? What is causing the offense? Well, I think that there are two possible answers to that. One is that we are being hated or dismissed for all the right reasons. In an essay that he wrote called The Decline of Religion, C.S. Lewis captures those reasons in an incredibly insightful way. This is what he says. As the real meaning of the Christian claim becomes apparent, its demand for total surrender the sheer chasm between nature and supernature, people will be increasingly offended. Dislike, terror, and finally, hatred will follow. None who will not give what it asks, and it asks all, can endure it. All who are not with it are against it. Listen to these words from Paul that compare us to captives who have been defeated in battle and are being led to our deaths by the one who conquered us. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And to the one, we are an aroma that brings death, and to the other, an aroma that brings life. Why the stench of death? Because there is a death that stands at the center of the Christian life. And not just the death of Jesus, which is offensive enough, but it's my death and your death, the death of every single follower of Christ. Mark chapter 8, beginning verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Is there a more offensive idea for a non-Christian than the idea of dying to self? I know it was repulsive to me when I was an atheist. And it was the single thing that I had to wrestle the hardest to overcome. It's only when you, when you come into the faith and begin to see through the eyes of faith that you recognize how sweet it is to lay down your life for him. Because that's the very thing that he did for us and it is the very thing for which we were made. The world should hate us because Jesus and his claims cause offense. And they will. But the world shouldn't hate us because we, in our words and actions, cause offense. Jesus' sweeping claims on our lives, his, insistent, his insistence that we will one day have to answer to God, his declaration that we are sinners under judgment in need of rescue, his call to take up our crosses and to follow him, that's offensive enough. We don't need to add our being pushy or rude or belittling or our impugning motives or assuming the worst or our drawing our swords or tearing people apart with our words. 
We don't have to add those things to the offense of the gospel. As followers of Christ, we have to be clear about what tools are available to us as we engage the unbelieving world. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war, war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. In the ancient world, the zealots used the weapons of this world to fight their spiritual battles. They carried small, small knives that were called sicarii, and they ambushed and they attacked and they killed Roman soldiers with them. They were held in bondage through weapons of war. So in a way of thinking that we can still fall into today, that the ends justify the means, they believed that they were justified when they fought for their freedom using the same weapons of war. Evangelicals can do just the same thing. We are attacked through scathing words on social media, so we attack back with scathing words on social media. We are attacked through power plays in city government, so we attack back through power plays in city government. The world uses sarcasm, personal attacks, ramping up in power, threats, bullying. And unfortunately, sometimes so do we, especially when we feel our rights and our freedoms have been threatened. Consider the radically countercultural example of Jesus himself when the world sought to attack him and bring down his fledgling movement. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When we engage the unbelieving world, I just want to encourage us again to consider which birth narrative we are living out of. The birth of our nation, which is about fighting for rights and insisting on freedoms, or the birth of the kingdom, which, as Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, is about laying down our rights and putting the other first and finding our freedom in God's service. Those are two very different stories of freedom, and they lead to two very different ways of relating to the unbelieving world. In his book, The Politics of the Cross, Daniel Williams raises some wonderfully challenging questions related to this, and, and I would hoped I might be able to read some of those to you, but just the introduction is worth the price of the book. I commend it to you, The Politics of the Cross, Daniel Williams. So we've talked about, first, how the world views us, and now we need to go back second, and we need to be clear about how we view the world. Just because the world hates us doesn't mean that we need to hate the world. One of the first relational principles of the Christian faith is that we do not relate to others on the basis of how they relate to us. We relate to others on the basis of how God relates to us. So when it comes down to it, really we can see the world in one of two ways. We can see it through the lens of John chapter 15, verse 19. The world hates you. It has it out for you. And a fist captures that posture perfectly. I suppose if you were a cartographer, you might call this a fistiform projection of the globe. 
The unbelieving world hates me, so I hate the unbelieving world. And that's the image that I carry around with me of the world that I live in. I sense a lot of people in the evangelical church today think of our engagement with the unbelieving world in terms of fighting. Have you ever done a word study on the word fight in the scriptures? It's really interesting what you discover when you do. In the Old Testament, the word fight is used 117 times. Probably not a surprise. In the New Testament, it's used 11 times. And I think that tells us something really important. Especially when we think about what the context was in which the New Testament came to being. Israel in New Testament times was under the control of an armed occupying army. And they had to pay terribly high taxes to an oppressive Roman emperor. And the Greco-Roman culture that was seeping into their world was much more permissive and morally loose than their own. And increasingly, followers of Jesus became objects of persecution. There was a lot that they could have picked fights over. So of that handful of references to fighting in the New Testament, four of them are about fighting the good faith, which has nothing to do with fighting the world. It's actually about fighting ourselves, fighting down our own sinful inclinations in order that we might remain faithful and disciplined as followers of Christ. Two more of the references are about the fighting and the quarreling between ourselves as followers of Christ that happen when we lose sight of God's great trustworthiness. And only one of them is about Christians fighting against the world. And this is what it says. Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 36 says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. There is no place that I can find where we are encouraged to frame our interaction with the unbelieving world in terms of a fight. Certainly not in the New Testament. And I think faithful interpretation of Scripture requires that we read the Old Testament through the New Testament rather than merely alongside of it as if every word of the Old Testament still applied equally to us today. What about the temple and the sacrificial system and ritual cleansing? Moses, throughout the Old Testament, repeatedly calls his people and his leaders to take up the sword, but Jesus, in the New Testament, tells his followers to put down the sword. Put your sword back in its place. Those who draw the sword will die by the sword, Jesus says. We need to be really careful about building a theology of culture wars from the Old Testament. So we can see the world through the lens of John chapter 15, verse 19. The world hates you, so you hate it. Or we can see the world through the lens of John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. In the world of map making, this is called a cordiform projection, which means heart-shaped. It was a way of drawing the world that became popular once the North and South America were discovered by the European world. Instead of saying, well, because the unbelieving world hates me, I'll hate the unbelieving world, I can choose to look at the world the way God does. And the scriptures are clear. God loves the world. 
So much that he's willing to lay down the life of his son for it. So I will look at the world the way that God looks at the world. Think of what would happen if this were the lens through which we saw the unbelieving world. Think of what would happen if this was the map that we had up on all of our walls, on the inside of us and around us. A picture of a heart and not a fist. How do you see the world? The way the world sees you or the way God sees the world? There's a third thing I think that we are called to clarify in the third biblical principle. We need to be clear about who we are and whose we are in this world. Back to John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. Jesus says, and this is absolutely stunning, as a result of his hand in our lives and his redemptive work, our essential nature and identity has been changed. We used to belong to this world, but now we belong with him to a completely different realm. Now we are citizens of heaven. And Jesus has brought us into his realm and under his reign. Which brings us to a really significant paradox in the teaching of Jesus. If that's true, why doesn't he just take us home to be with him the moment we become followers of Christ? We no longer belong to this world, but we're still here. Well, it turns out we are right where he wants us to be. And right where he intends for us to stay as we carry out our calling as citizens in the colony of heaven. Jesus picks up this same theme two chapters later in chapter 17 in the prayer that makes up the whole last chapter of this final conversation he has with the disciples. Jesus says, beginning verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. They, referring to us, the followers of Christ, the church. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am. And my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus says that we are called not to be distant from the world. We are called to stay in close proximity to the world. In fact, Jesus says we are not just in it, we are sent to it. That means we do not have the freedom to just pull out of the world and, and isolate ourselves in an exclusively Christian subworld or surround ourselves exclusively with Christian friends and hold our breath until finally we get to go be with Jesus. We are called to be in this world. We are sent to it. We're sent to rub shoulders with this world, living our lives out in the midst of it. Why? so that you and I together can put the kingdom of God on display and so that we can advance it as one person after another comes to know Jesus as king. We can't do that. We cannot reach the world we are sent to if we don't wade into it. So we're called not to be distant from the world, but at the same time, we are called to, to be distinct from the world. The allegiances of our hearts will look completely different from those that characterize a world that does not look to God. Jesus prays to the Father that we would be sanctified by the word. 
Sanctified means made holy. And you've heard me say often that being holy doesn't just mean living our lives by a strict moral code. It means being distinctive. Specifically, it means being distinctive as a result of the presence and the work of God in our lives. God present in me sets me apart, makes me different, makes me like him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we all with unveiled faces are being transformed into the image of, into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. This is a, a great and important shorthand way for us to understand what it means to be sanctified or to be holy. It means becoming more and more like Jesus. It means exactly the same thing. As Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 29, God chose us to become like his son. So we are called to be oddballs in this world. We are called to be the oddball sitting in the next desk over. The strange person in a cubicle down the hall or, or at the table in the boardroom or in front of the classroom or in the house across the street from our neighbor, right in there among everybody else and strange because our lives are marked by the utterly unfamiliar and strange qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and being controlled by the Spirit of God from within. In other words, the very same qualities that marked Jesus. How clear are you about who we are and whose we are and why we're still here? Well, that leads to the, the last key biblical point about which I think we need to be clear. And that is that we need to be clear about our essential calling toward the world. We are not just sent to the world. We are sent to the world in love. As we've said again and again over the past two Sundays and, and many times over the last couple of years, as agents and representatives of Jesus, we are called, every one of us, to live a life of love. This is how Jesus begins his, uh, his last conversation with the disciples in the upper room. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is the thing that will set us apart as ones who belong to Jesus, our love. It's a theme with which Jesus begins his final message in John's gospel, and it's a theme with which he ends it in the closing lines of his closing prayer in chapter 17. Beginning in verse 25, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. And I've made you known to them, and I'll continue to make you known, in order that the love that you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Our love is to be the marker that we are his, it is to be the proof that we belong to him. It is the way that we, will be, that we will be known to the world, and it is the way by which he will become known in this world, our love. Which brings us to a really important question. 
There are so many different definitions of love that are out there. So what does Jesus mean when he calls us to a life of love as his people? We are called to live a life of love in a world that is hostile to us. What does that mean? I think it might be helpful first to clarify what love isn't. And I think there are two extremes that we can fall towards. One that sometimes the world can pull us towards, the other that sometimes the church can pull us towards. Contrary to what the world says, love is not the same thing as indiscriminate acceptance. I think that's the basic idea that's meant to be communicated by the phrase, love is love. Indiscriminate acceptance. But followers of Christ know that we don't just believe that whatever you think will make you happy is what God is what makes God happy. That you do you is God's best way for you to live. But contrary to some parts of what the Christian church says, neither is love the same thing as unaccepting judgment. Out of our fear as followers of Christ that we are communicating that we approve of someone's sin, we feel a need to withhold acceptance from people whose choices we don't agree with. We have to get past that unbiblical idea that for me to accept you and to welcome you and to create a place for you in my heart is for me to condone your sin. That's not true. Think about how Jesus accepted us. He certainly didn't condone our sin, but nonetheless, his arms were open wide to sinners, to tax collectors, to drunkards, to prostitutes, and to you and to me. Rather than withholding his love, Until we made ourselves acceptable, Jesus made us acceptable by loving us. Rather than withholding his love until we made ourselves acceptable, Jesus made us acceptable by loving us. Romans chapter 15, verse 7, a key passage. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Well, I think another temptation for us, in addition to feeling like we have to be crystal clear in our stance on someone else's sin, I think we can also fall into thinking that that it's our job to convict the world of its sin. But in John chapter 16, Jesus says that's the job of the Spirit, not our job. John chapter 16, verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. I'm sure you know, in Ephesians, it's a verse that's familiar to all of us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul calls us to speak the truth in love. But I think sometimes Christians have gotten confused, and we have thought that Paul said we should speak the truth as love instead of speaking the truth in love. We have thought at times that by holding the word of God, by holding up the word of God and speaking harshly to the unbelieving world, that by hitting the world with the truth, we were loving it. But Paul says we are to speak the truth in love as we are loving. And Paul sure isn't at a, at a loss as to understand what is and what isn't love. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't love, I'm just a gong or a clanging cymbal. We've talked about some things that people hold up as love that really aren't love. What is love? Well, as I understand it, biblical love is always marked by two essential dimensions. First, deep care 
and regard for that other person. And second, a deep willingness to sacrifice for that other person. Love is wanting the best for that other person and it's being willing to seek the best for that other person even when it costs us. And it will. The second part of that, the willingness to put others first at cost to ourselves, it's clear enough even though it's awfully challenging to live out. But what about this wanting the best for someone? What if your definition of what's best is different from my definition? Who's best then? I mean, isn't that really the rub? Isn't that really where the tension lies in our engagement with the world? Whose version of best? Well, I think that difficulty gets cleared up when we think in terms of wanting God's best for someone. That is the essence of biblical love for the world. In the message paraphrase, that's Paul's prayer for Philemon in Philemon chapter 1, verse 3. God's best to you. Christ's blessings on you. Then it's not about me trying to impose something on you or, or pressuring you to see something a certain way or trying to get you to conform your life to a certain standard. It's about me trying to speak and live in such a way that I reflect the heart of God to you so that your heart might become open to how God sees you and to what God has done for you in Christ and to what God desires of us both. So love rightly understood from a biblical perspective is me wanting God's best for you and being willing to seek that even when it costs me. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there is a remarkably indiscriminate quality to the love that we are called to show the world. Jesus doesn't say, love your neighbor, love your enemy, unless you were particularly aggrieved or feel especially hurt or feel like you've really been mistreated, then go for blood. He says, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other one as well. And then your reward will be great. And hear this. And you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked just as your father. So be merciful just as your father is merciful. I think that last section is one of the most overlooked overlooked parts in all of Jesus's teaching. And it's so crucial. He says that when we show this kind of accepting love, even to those who dismiss us or who are hostile toward us, then we are showing that we are part of the same family as God himself. We are his offspring. We have the same heart. We are merciful just as he is merciful. Again, Jesus emphasizes the revelatory nature of our love. When we love, we reveal. We reveal not just that we are his, we reveal him. When we love, we reveal Jesus. That's why it's so important that we not excuse in ourselves behavior that Jesus doesn't excuse in us. 
We want to make exceptions for ourselves. Yes, but you don't understand. Here's why it's okay for me to ignore the call to love in this situation with this person. Why me getting angry and ramping up with power and, and, and going after someone is acceptable. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Do good to those who hate you. John chapter 15, verse 19. The world hates you. So the conclusion is, do good to the world that hates you. You and I live in a world that is hostile to our faith. But we don't have to guess how we are called to respond in that incredibly challenging situation. The scriptures guide us clearly, I believe, in engaging our world with a life of love. And the clearer we are about who we are, the clearer, clearer we are about how we are to view this world, the, the clearer we are about why we are here, the greater will be our faithfulness to the one whom to love is to obey. So as I wrap up these thoughts and we come to a closing worship song, I just want to remind us that it turns out that the best way for us to love the world as we are called to is by lifting our eyes off of the stress and the press of that world and to, to turn them and to rest them on the one who is seated on the throne in the middle of this world, ruling over all of it in perfect faithfulness and holiness and love. So would you pray with me? And let's just let that posture of prayer and worship carry us into our closing song. Gracious Lord God, who in all of existence is the only one worthy of our worship and our service, we bow before you this morning. We worship you as the one who loves us, who died for us, who reigned over us. We worship you as the one to whom we belong. 